I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Hamilton is a port city in the Canadian province of Ontario and is about 30 miles southwest of Toronto. It is also only 55 miles from the border with New York State. The city was founded by merchant and politician George Hamilton after purchasing a 257-acre farm shortly after the War of 1812. The town became the center of a densely populated and industrialized region at the west end of Lake Ontario known as the Golden Horseshoe. Hamilton is now one of Canada's leading industrial centers. Its iron and steel industry, which began in the mid-19th century, has grown to become Canada's largest, accounting for a major part of the national steel output. Hamilton is also known as the waterfall capital of the world and is home to more than 100 waterfalls. While many of the waterfalls are quiet and serene, Hamilton also boasts a waterfall that is the biggest in any urban area of its size. Two's Falls is more than 134 feet high. But in 2013, this beautiful city was the scene of a desperate and pointless murder that reinforced for the public that things are not always as they appear. Before we begin, we wanted to thank Megan from Vancouver, Canada, who sent us this story to cover. This is the third episode she suggested. So Megan, thank you and keep them coming. Just a reminder, Kathy and I are heading to Chattanooga, Tennessee woo, woo. <laughs> to attend the Literary Ink Convention, which is a Harry Potter inspired tattoo convention. And we are going to be there with the podcast. We'll have a booth. We'll have free giveaways. And Friday and Saturday, we will do a live Q&A. And on Sunday, we are going to record a podcast at the convention with everyone. Get your tickets for the convention at literaryinc.co. We hope to see you all there. In May 2013, 32-year-old Tim Bosma and his wife Charlene listed his black 2007 Dodge Ram pickup truck for sale on Kijiji. Kijiji is similar to Craigslist, but it's more popular for Canadians. Tim and Charlene had a two-year-old daughter and were tied on funds and really needed the money. On May 6, Tim received a call from a man who wanted to take a test drive, so Tim gave him his home address and agreed to meet him at 6 p.m. The man showed up with a friend much later than the Bosmas agreed to meet. It was 9.30 p.m. when the two of them arrived. As we said, Tim and Charlene needed the money, so they agreed to let the men test drive the truck. Not wanting to have his truck stolen, Tim got into the front seat of the pickup with the driver, and the second guy sat in the back seat. As Tim left the house, he smiled at Charlene and told her he'd be right back. When repeated calls and texts to Tim's phone went unanswered, Charlene reached out to family and friends to find out if Tim had dropped by after his test drive. No one had seen him. When Tim had not returned home, Charlene called the police the next morning and reported him missing. Friends and family mounted a massive search campaign, hanging up posters and working together in the Bosma's garage to create a large social media campaign. Tim Bosma was declared officially missing by Hamilton, Ontario Police on May 7, 2013. The next day, the homicide unit was called in to assist in the investigation. 
Two days after Tim disappeared, his wife Charlene spoke at a police press conference and appealed to the kidnappers to return her husband. She said, It was just a truck, a stupid truck. You do not need him, but I do. Our daughter needs her daddy. Investigators were able to track Tim's phone, and three days after he went missing, his phone was found near Brantford, Ontario, about 20 minutes south of the Bosma home in Ancaster. The phone was laying in the grass at an industrial site, but there was no sign of Tim or his truck. Now, officers were able to obtain Tim's phone records and found that one of the last incoming calls to his phone was registered to a man named Lucas Bate. Police could not find anyone in their system by that name and discovered the phone had been purchased at a store in Etobicoke, which is in Toronto, and was paid for in cash. The police went to the address listed on the phone's purchase record and discovered it was actually a Toronto high school. However, there was no Lucas Bate registered at the school. But now they know Lucas Bates' phone number. So using Lucas Bates' phone records, police called the numbers that were listed and were able to find two men who listed similar Dodge trucks for sale on Kijiji. One man told investigators he missed the call when it came in and he did not get an answer when he called back. Police also tracked down a Toronto man who actually went on a test drive with Lucas Bate and another man. He was able to give a description of the two men who came to see his truck and told detectives the men seemed suspicious to him. Now, one key detail stuck out in his mind. One of the men had a tattoo on his wrist that was the word ambition. Hamilton investigators reached out to other police agencies to see if they knew anyone who had a similar tattoo. Two reliable police sources in Toronto and Peel gave them the name Dellen Millard. 27-year-old Dellen, who sported a pink mohawk, was in the limelight in 1999 when, at the age of 14, he became the youngest Canadian to fly a helicopter and a plane solo on the same day. Millard was also the heir to Millard Air. The second one is AIR, (laughs) a Canadian airline founded by his grandfather that operated from 1963 to 1990 that under his father's direction later became an aircraft maintenance and servicing firm. Millard's parents divorced when he was young and his father died in November of 2012. Hamilton police pulled Millard's phone records and found that his cell phone was pinging off similar towers at around the same time as the Lucas Bait phone on the day that Tim Bosma disappeared. Police went to the Millard air hangar to interview Dellen Millard and see if he matched the description of the suspect they were looking for. When an investigator informed him that he was there investigating Tim Bosma's disappearance and asked if he could have a look around, Millard replied, I thought you were going to say that. After that interview, Millard was put under surveillance. On May 11, 2013, four days after Tim was reported missing, Dellen Millard was arrested by Hamilton police and charged with forcible confinement and theft over $5,000 in relation to Tim's disappearance. What I read, Kath, is when they charged Dellen Millard with these two crimes, they wanted to be able to search his properties. So the judge allowed Dellen Millard to be jailed for two weeks while the investigators searched his properties. The next day, police found Tim Bosma's black Dodge pickup truck in a covered trailer at Millard's mother's house. The truck was stripped, but blood and gunshot residue were found in the interior. At the time, police said that Millard's mother had no knowledge of 
or involvement in any crime. They also searched a farm owned by Dellen Millard in Ayr, a city in southwestern Ontario, and a Millard Air aviation hangar at Waterloo International Airport. Eight days after Tim Bosman drove away from his house and never returned, charred human remains that were confirmed as Tim's were discovered in an animal incinerator on Millard's farm in Ayr. That day, Dellen Millard's charges were upgraded to first-degree murder. Police continued their search for the man who went on the test drive with Millard and were immediately directed to one of his closest friends, Mark Smitch. The two men met in 2006, and over the years they grew closer. In 2012, Smitch and his girlfriend moved into the basement suite at the Millard family home in Toronto. Smitch had a very different background than Millard did. Where Millard was wealthy, Smitch was strictly middle class. Where Millard had limited prior contact with the police, Smitch had a string of petty criminal offenses, twice for drug possession, impaired driving, vandalism. And on and on and on. Exactly. After surveilling Smitch for a week, Hamilton police arrested him on May 22, 2013, as Millard's accomplice in Tim Bosma's murder. The next day, he was charged with first-degree murder. Within a few short days of charges being brought against Millard, investigators looked into his history and noticed two suspicious events that made them dig deeper. Just a few days after Mark Smitch's arrest, it was reported that Toronto police were opening an investigation into the death of Dellen Millard's father, Wayne. When Wayne Millard died in late November 2012, his death was ruled a suicide. Now, despite the fact that Wayne had been cremated, in light of Dellen Millard's charges, investigators wanted to take a second look. They were also looking into the disappearance of Millard's former girlfriend, Laura Babcock, who disappeared in July 2012 and was never seen again. Almost one year after Dellen Millard was charged with first-degree murder in the death of Tim Bosma, on April 10th, 2014, two additional first-degree murder charges were filed for his father, Wayne Millard, and his former girlfriend, Laura Babcock. Millard's co-defendant in the Tim Bosma murder, Mark Smitch, was also charged with first-degree murder in Laura Babcock's death. 21-year-old Christina Nudga, Millard's girlfriend in 2013 at the time of Tim Bosma's death, was charged with being an accessory after the fact. Trial for the murder of Tim Bosma began on February 1st, 2016, with Justice Andrew Goodman presiding. The Crown's first witness was Tim Bosma's widow, Charlene. Her moving testimony painted a portrait of a loving husband and a doting father to their now five-year-old daughter. At trial, she went through the tragic events on the night her husband was killed. The Crown presented several clips of security footage that were critical to helping investigators find Tim's killer. They outlined the timeline of events on the night that Tim disappeared. One video from a business next to Dellen Millard's family-owned airplane hangar shot shortly after midnight on May 7th, so just hours after Tim disappeared, showed a truck pulling a trailer being followed closely by an SUV. Soon after that, at about 1.13 a.m., another clip of footage was shown to the jury, this time from inside the hangar itself. 
it showed two men walking through the hangar. What was interesting about this clip of footage was that it was recovered from a DVR seized at the home of Christina Nudga, who, as we said, was Dellen Millard's girlfriend at the time. This is likely why she was charged as an accessory after the fact. Or was likely given the video from the hangar by her boyfriend. And hung on to it, and yeah. probably told her to destroy it and she hung on to it instead. True. The jury was also shown security camera footage that appeared to show the animal incinerator inside the airplane hangar. Now, remember, Tim's body was found in an animal incinerator on Millard's farm. So what the jury sees is this incinerator inside the airplane hangar hours after he goes missing. And what the video shows is a brief, really bright light coming from the incinerator. The Crown believed that the light was actually the fire which incinerated Tim Bosma's remains. Kath, I read that family members and friends who were at the trial wept as this video was presented because it was the last visual clue of what might have happened to their loved one that night. I can't even imagine his wife sitting there and watching that. Exactly. Especially that light. Oh my God, the, the cold rage that would surge through my body. I can't imagine. You know what's interesting, Kathy, about that incinerator, and it's something that we saw later, is that apparently Dellen Millard first intended to have his mechanic build a homemade incinerator, saying that he wanted to be able to take care of any animals that were found on his farm. And he also thought he could start a pet cremation business. Mark Spitch was helping him at the time trying to make this homemade incinerator. When it became clear to them that it wouldn't work, Millard actually bought a commercial grade animal incinerator that was known as the Eliminator, and it cost $15,000. Now, Dellen Millard attempted to use his current girlfriend, Christina, who we've mentioned before, as what he called his secret agent from behind bars to try and influence the testimony of key Crown witnesses in the Tim Bosma case. Assistant Crown Attorney Tony Leitch read out pages and pages of letters Millard sent to Christina while he was awaiting trial for Tim Bosma's murder. At this trial, Kath, Dellen Millard chose not to testify. His co-defendant, Mark Smitch, decided to take the stand in his own defense so that he could tell the jury his own version of events of what occurred the night that Tim Bosma was murdered. And I'm sure his own version was like, I'm just going to point to this guy sitting over here. My buddy, Dellen. Exactly. We're, <laughs> All his idea. We're besties. He's crazy. Exactly. <laughs> As expected, Smitch testified that it was Dellen Millard who fatally shot Tim and burned his body in the animal incinerator. Smitch told the jury that as Millard got out of Tim's truck during their test drive, he looked mad like a lunatic, like something came over him. Smitch said he saw Tim's body slumped over the dash of the truck and a bullet hole through the window and told the jury there was a lot of blood. Smitch testified that he and Millard had been working on stealing a truck for about a year and said Millard gave him $200 and some marijuana after stealing Tim's truck. Smitch also testified that he had buried the murder weapon, but had no recollection of where he had buried it. Liar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, while Dellen Millard did not testify, his defense counsel told the court that it was Smitch who accidentally shot Tim Bosma on a nearby highway in an attempt to steal his truck. Of course, Smitch denied this. 
After five days of deliberation on June 27, 2016, more than three years after Tim Bosma was killed, the jury reached their verdict. Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch were guilty of first-degree murder. According to a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation article, Justice Andrew Goodman broke with practice and addressed the court before imposing the sentences, saying, What happened to Tim Bosma on the night of May 6, 2013 is incomprehensible and unimaginable, adding that the actions of the men were despicable. That's interesting, though, Kath, if it was a break from practice, right? Because that's fairly common in U.S. court. Yeah, it's not unusual during sentencing, like at a sentencing hearing, for the judge to recap some of the testimony or to give his own opinion. Judge Goodman then sentenced both to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years, which would have been 2038. Members of the Bosma family cried in relief when the decision was announced. With these convictions, a weight came off the Bosma family. Charlene Bosma said, We just kind of felt like for three years, we've been slowly collecting cinder blocks and dragging them along behind us, and we didn't even know they were there. And then yesterday, those ropes, those tethers were cut. And the biggest burden that we didn't know was there was lifted. I thought that was such a well-spoken description I of totally what agree. all this was. Just like carrying that extra burden. weight. Yeah, without even knowing it. And I agree. Now, as we said earlier, Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch were still facing a charge of first degree murder in the death of Laura Babcock, Millard's ex-girlfriend. Millard was also charged with first-degree murder in the death of his father. In 2017, more than a year after being found guilty of the murder of Tim Bosma, trial began for Millard and Smitch in the murder of Laura Babcock. The Crown alleged that the two men killed Laura and burned her body in the animal incinerator. Laura Babcock was 23 when she disappeared from Toronto in July of 2012. This was 10 months before Tim Bosma was killed. Laura's body has never been found. And Kath, shockingly, for this first-degree murder trial, Dellen Millard acted as his own attorney. That is incredible. I would have loved to have been a fly on the walls of that trial. I'm actually surprised they let him. Well, I'm sure the judge went up and down with all sorts of admonitions. Was the judge hopping up and down instead of the defense counsel? (laughs) I mean, judges really do try to convince you to get a lawyer. As they should. Aside from the practical due process issues and evidentiary issues. Which may be different in Canada. Right. The process of trial itself becomes inefficient. According to a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation article by Shannon Martin on December 16, 2017, from the beginning of the trial, Crown attorneys admitted their case was complex and circumstantial. The reason for Laura's murder, according to the Crown, was the love triangle between Dellen Millard, Laura Babcock, and Millard's girlfriend, Christina Nudga. Prosecutors told the jury it was Millard and Smitch's own failed attempts to cover up the crime that was their undoing. In opening statement, the Crown prosecutor summarized the evidence and told the jury about text messages sent by Millard to Christina two months before Laura's alleged murder. The prosecutor quoted one of the text messages to the jury. First, I'm going to hurt her. Then I'll make her leave. I will remove her from our lives. 
The Crown said that Millard and Laura were romantically involved before he started dating Christina, which was the cause of significant problems between the two women. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, <laughs> despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Doctors take Field of Greens for their own health. Here's Dr. Ryan Green to explain. We're like you, too much fast food, not enough exercise. That's why I take Field of Greens. The fruits and vegetables in Field of Greens support my heart, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism for weight loss. And Field of Greens promises your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. Get 15% off with promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. That's promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. Product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Crown's first witness was Laura's father, Clayton Babcock. He described his daughter as a happy and bubbly young woman who was a hard worker. Mr. Babcock fought bad tears at times when he recounted the fond memories of Christmas gifts from his daughter and the times they spent listening to music and watching TV together. But he admitted that around the time Laura was finishing university, she was showing signs that she was troubled. Mr. Babcock said his daughter was in and out of the house in the months leading up to her disappearance in the summer of 2012. The family had disagreements about her staying out late and hanging out with new friends. At one point in time, Kat, the family changed the locks on their home, although Laura knew where the key was stored and so she could still access the house. Probably because I'm totally speculating here, but I'm guessing it might be they weren't sure who had a key. Laura might have given it out to these new friends who they didn't like. She might have been having some mental challenges. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Like reading between the lines, these parents did not like her group of friends. Right. But they still wanted to make sure she knew she could come home. That's how I took it as well. So when Mr. Babcock was asked about Laura's mental health, he told the court that he suspected she may have been having problems, but they couldn't quite figure it out. Kath, correct me if I'm wrong, which she'll do. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love doing. So go ahead. (laughs) But this is actually a time in most people's lives around that same age. You're in your mid-20s. There's a lot of mental health issues that can exhibit themselves around this time, and especially in the late 20s. Okay, so here's the sad and crazy thing. So Millard is now representing himself, right? So he gets to cross-examine Laura's father. That's disgraceful that that's allowed. I get why it is. It has to be. But it's just awful. It's awful. And I don't know how he didn't climb out of that box and choke that guy. But anyway, so what happens is Millard is asking him questions like, are you nervous? This can't be easy for you being questioned by me considering I'm the accused. Does it make it extra difficult? 
I mean, this kind of crap, almost like taunting, I guess. Oh, absolutely. When you read it, it sounds taunting in real life. I don't know. It had to have been, especially because he was cocky enough to represent himself. But these were also the very first questions he asked Mr. Babcock. Yes, yes. So he was starting it out in an adversarial role. Right. So he's like, is this difficult? Is it, you know, whatever. And so Mr. Babcock was simply responding, no. He was apparently super dignified, super composed, and did not lose his cool. Millard goes through these questions asking Laura's father about her personal life and relationship she had with her family, attempting to call into question her mental health and stability and all that kind of stuff. One of the questions Millard asked Mr. Babcock, which totally would have launched me into a throat punch, (laughs) was, did Laura ever tell you she worked as a prostitute? And did you hit her or abuse her in any way? So Mr. Babcock was just cool as a cucumber and simply said, no. I can't imagine the restraint he had to not react, right? Because that's what Millard wanted. He wanted a reaction. Yeah, that's what it seems like he was trying to goad the guy. And who knows, he may have been trying to goad him into implying to the jury like, oh, this is the real killer. Her father did it. Who knows? I don't don't know what he was thinking. Causing reasonable doubt. Right. But I am sure Mr. Babcock was sitting there going, I have got to maintain control for my daughter. I'm not going to screw this up. I'm just going to be cool. The Crown said in the days before Laura disappeared, she and Millard texted and talked on the phone 110 times. You would be miserable. I would be miserable. I would be miserable. I would be super oppressed by that. Absolutely. Cell phone records showed the phones of Millard, Smitch, and Laura Babcock were all at Millard's home on July 3rd, 2012, which was the day of Laura's disappearance. They were probably all there to celebrate 4th of July the next day. I doubt they were patriotic. (laughs) They don't celebrate 4th of July. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point. (laughs) Laura's phone was used for the last time at 7.03 p.m. that day when she called to check her voicemail. Kathy, this is interesting. As you can imagine, in the weeks and months that followed, Laura's phone continued to receive countless calls and text messages from friends and family who were desperate to reach her. Of course. The Crown told the jury that Millard never texted or called her after that night. He knew he didn't need to. Exactly. It was also revealed Laura's phone records and bank accounts have remained unused and untouched. The day following Laura's last communication, so this is now July 4th, Millard sent Smitch a text message that read, the barbecue is ready for meat. You know, Kath, what I read is Millard had received this incinerator three weeks prior to Laura disappearing. And remember, this would have been June of 2012. So almost a year before Tim Bosman was murdered. Right. However, it was not operational until July 4th. I guess everything involved with setting it up took a little bit of time, but on July 4th, it was finally ready to go. And that's when Millard sent the text message about the barbecue being ready for meat. Kath, mm. the Crown also introduced evidence of an internet search on Millard's cell phone that asked the question, what temperature is cremation done at? Thank God they have computer forensics on these things. No kidding. And thank God he had the same cell phone. Right. That same night, so we're still on July 4th of 2012, lyrics to a rap song were written on an iPad that belonged to Laura Babcock. Interestingly, Kath, the electronic records of the iPad showed that on July 4th, the name was changed from Laura's iPad to Mark's iPad. As you'll recall, Mark is Smitch's first name. The Crown showed the jury a homemade video of Smitch, who was a total wannabe rapper, and it was played more than once in court. 
Now, I'm going to tell you what the lyrics to the rap song were, but I'm not going to swear. There's only one word that actually is swearing, but you'll all get it. The bee started off all skin and bone. Now the bee lay on some ashy stone. Last time I saw hers outside the home. And if you go swimming, you can find her phone. Not a great artist. No. The prosecution then played a video that was recorded in Millard's basement that showed Mark Smitch performing the song. I bet he looked like a huge D-bag. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the video. He absolutely did. Oh my God, I bet. The jury were also shown some of the 65 handwritten letters we previously mentioned that Dellen Millard sent to his girlfriend Christina while he was in custody after being arrested for Tim Bosma's murder. These were letters that were found scattered all around her bedroom, and they were found by a police detective shortly before Millard was charged with Laura Babcock's murder. In one letter, Millard detailed the night Laura disappeared. He wrote, It is a very real possibility you will be called as a witness. Whatever you may believe, you need to put aside. This is what happened. Laura was doing coke with Mark in the basement. We went to say goodnight to them. You saw her alive with Mark and Coke. Millard then, in a different letter, described a scenario where Laura Babcock would have overdosed. He said, what I've written to you is a rough draft. We need to get our story straight. In his letters to Christina, he repeatedly professed his love for her and urged her to keep their communications secret. In one of the final letters read to the jury, Millard wrote, that stuff I wrote before, that was just brainstorming. Forget it. He ended the letter like he did many of his letters to Christina. Destroy this letter to protect me. Okay, so not to give away anything that happened in the last podcast we did. Um, if you all have stuff to disappear or destroy, do it yourself. Seriously, that's I mean, the lesson. Not only did she keep all the letters, right? she didn't even try and hide them. They were literally scattered across her bedroom. Thank you, Christina. We appreciate Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And you know what? <laughs> If you guys do something criminal, do give it to other people because right. you need to be taken down for it. <laughs> Forget true. everything exactly. I said. Quit giving out crook advice. <laughs> In his defense, Millard attempted to convince the jury that he did not care enough about Christina to kill for her. Sweet guy. Mm -hmm. Now, Smitch had his own lawyer, but his lawyer did not call any witnesses. He basically said if there was a love triangle, it had nothing to do with his client. Good point. That is a good point. Neither Millard nor Smitch's lawyer cross-examined the retired police officer who presented the letters in court. So Millard and Smitch's defense counsel argued that Laura Babcock may have overdosed or taken her life or run away. They said she had recently started working as an escort, and after fighting with her parents about curfews and house rules, she was couch surfing. At the core of both defenses was the following. Laura Babcock's body was never found, so there is no way to prove beyond a reasonable doubt she is dead. After seven weeks of trial, the jury returned their verdicts. Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch were both found guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Laura Babcock. Laura's family and several jurors cried as the verdict was read. Millard and Smitch were automatically sentenced to life imprisonment without a chance of parole for 25 years. The judge ordered that the sentences run consecutively for both men, which means they would both have to serve 50 years before they would be eligible to apply for parole. On the courthouse steps following the verdict, Laura's father, Mr. Babcock, who attended every day of the trial with his wife, said the verdict, while welcome, 
did not ease his family's suffering. He said, We just sat through a six-week funeral for our daughter, Laura. You all know what a wonderful woman she was, as well as all the pains and struggles that she faced. You also know about the evil beings that took her life, and if society's lucky, we will not see them again on the streets. Like any parent that loses a child, we can only move forward with the thoughts of what might have been. Six months after Dellen Millard was convicted of first-degree murder for the second time, in June 2018, his third trial for first-degree murder was held in front of a judge rather than in front of a jury. Ontario's attorney general agreed with Millard's defense counsel that his two previous high-profile trials would make it difficult to find fair jurors. I kind of already gave away the secret, but he did not defend himself in this trial. Right. (laughs) When 71-year-old Wayne Millard was found in his home in Etobicoke on November 29, 2012, with a single gunshot wound to his left eye, his death was initially ruled a suicide. At the time, Dellen Millard was living at his father's house, but had stayed at his friend Mark Smitch's house the night of November 28th, not returning home until November 29th. So just to make sure it's clear, Dellen Millard's first victim was Laura Babcock in July of 2012. We're now in November of 2012, and he's accused of killing his father at that point. Tim Bosma's murder happened six months after Dellen Millard's father died. Once the case was reopened after Millard was accused of killing Tim Bosma, investigators discovered two key facts that led them to suspect Millard had killed his father. Millard's DNA was on the gun used to shoot his father, and his cell phone had pinged off nearby cell towers around the time it's believed Wayne died, even though Dellen said he was staying at Smitch's house. According to a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation article by Adam Carter on June 4th, 2018, the Crown played a video of Millard's statement to the police taken on the day his father died. Millard told police that he walked into his father's home on November 29th to pick up a sweater and noticed that his father was still in bed. He thought it was strange because it was around 6.30 p.m. So Millard poked his head inside his father's master bedroom and something didn't seem right. So he walked into the room and saw blood on the pillow. He told officers that for a moment he had to leave the room and went back to his own room. It sounded on the video cast that he had done it to get his cell phone. Did you hear that the same way? I felt like he did it to collect himself. Okay. But anyway. We're both right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then he went back to his dad's room then called his mother and told her that there was blood all over his father's pillow and that he was dead. Millard told police the last time he saw his father was the day prior around noon for a business meeting. In the video of the police interview, Millard said his father had a very strong liver because he drank so much and was dealing with a debilitating back problem. He also said his father was stressed out about his business and dealt with depression. This last statement pointed to the core of the defense's case, that Millard's father killed himself because he was a reclusive, depressed alcoholic. So the coroner, Dr. David Evans, who initially ruled the death a suicide, testified at Millard's trial that his findings were influenced by statements he received from Dellen and his mother, Madeline Burns, who told him Wayne Millard was having financial problems and was dealing with bouts of depression. 
One of the things Dr. Evans said was that he did find it very unusual how Wayne Millard had killed himself because he never really saw somebody commit suicide by shooting themselves in their eye. That is bizarre. Even though Dr. Evans consistently called the case a suicide, at least one police officer had doubts. Now retired Toronto police detective James Hutchins said a lot of things made him think the death was suspicious. Chief among them was how long it took Millard to call 911 after he allegedly found his father's body. The detective testified that the first thing Dylan Millard did when he found his dad was not to call 911, but to call his mother. And remember, he also called a friend. Yeah. You're right. That was something that was revealed in the police tape. So he right. called his friend and then he called his mother. Exactly. And then waited for his mother to arrive at his father's home before they called 911. Right. So he needed moral support. And exactly. apparently that's why he called his buddy. Dylan Millard's DNA was not tested against the DNA on the gun until June of 2015. This is two years after he was arrested for Tim Bosma's murder. The DNA showed it was a match. Kat, did you see any videos of him or anything during that interview with the officers where he said he didn't have any idea his dad had a gun and he had never used a gun, that kind of thing? I didn't see anything like that. No articles, no videos. And we couldn't pull court records. Right. And so I am assuming that he told officers that he didn't know his dad had a gun because it would be explainable if his DNA was on the gun. Agreed. In addition, the prosecution put forth the theory that Millard went to his father's home killed him, and then returned later that same day to claim he found his father dead. Now, remember, Millard had told police he spent the night at Smitch's house. Right. Evidence was presented at trial that a phone connected to Millard called a taxi from Smitch's house just after 1 a.m. the morning of his dad's death, and that same phone later pinged off a cell phone tower near his father's home at 6 a.m. that same day. And remember, he told police that he had seen his father at noon the day before. Right. So, Kat, the primary motive for the crown was that we had mentioned at the very beginning that Dylan Millard was the heir to Millard Air. This was an aviation company that was created by his grandfather, was a very big deal for a while. But as his father came into the business, the planes were aging mm -hmm. and the family had decided not to reinvest that money to replace the planes because obviously it's a lot of Millions money. Millions of dollars. Right. So his father had transitioned it to an aircraft service and maintenance company. But at the time of Wayne Millard's death, he wanted this to be Dellen Millard's legacy. Mm -hmm. So as a result, he was putting millions of dollars into the company to give it a stronger foundation than it had. And remember, his dad's only 71, so I'm sure he probably wanted to retire. But, you know, he still was very involved in the day to day operations of the business. Right. It seemed like he was a very hands on guy. And it also seemed from what I read that the people who worked with him at the business did not particularly care for his son. Correct. They like, respected him. Right. But did his not son enjoy was his a son. slacker. Right. Anyway, so the Crown is saying Dellen was upset because his dad is dumping his millions of dollars into this company when Dellen had absolutely no interest in having anything to do with it. Now, Millard's defense team, though, discounted the Crown's motive by pointing out that not a single witness came before the court and suggested there was any discord at all between Millard and his father. The three-week trial ended on June 22, 2018, and Justice Maureen Forstell began considering the evidence. Remember, this is not a jury trial, so once all the evidence is submitted and each side closes, she now takes the time to review everything and come to a decision. So three months later, on September 21st, 
CBC News journalist Adam Carter reported that Justice Forstell handed down her decision and found Dellen Millard guilty of murdering his father. The judge was quoted as saying, I am satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Dellen Millard killed his father by shooting him in the left eye as he slept. And Kath, her decision was 36 pages long. And apparently one of the big things that she relied on was Dellen Millard's false alibi. She said he absolutely did not spend the night at his friend Mark Smitch's home on the night his father died. Dellen Millard was led out of the courtroom in shackles with many people in the courtroom breaking out in applause. That surprised me when I saw that. Well, I love it. Yes, I agree. I, I, I love that kind of stuff. Even though it's totally inappropriate, blah, blah, blah. I still love it. (laughs) And he's now officially a Canadian serial killer. That's true. Then 33-year-old Millard was sentenced to his third consecutive life term. So, Kath, by the time this third trial ended, he was supposed to have served 75 years in prison before being eligible to apply for parole. And apparently it's not automatic, kind of like it is here, right? You don't necessarily get parole even if you're eligible to apply for parole. Right, but you get a hearing. Okay, so here's an interesting twist. About a week and a half ago, articles came out, and the one I read was by Michelle Mandel of the Toronto Sun, that the Supreme Court of Canada made a controversial ruling in May of 2022, striking down consecutive periods of parole ineligibility as cruel and unusual punishment. So basically what they were saying, every time a judge tacked on a consecutive life sentence, it meant they were prolonging the period in which a prisoner had to serve time before they were eligible to apply for parole. Exactly. And so they're saying, hey, this is not right. Even though he's been given a life sentence, We don't want him to spend life in prison. Well, no, we don't want him to be eligible for parole in 75 years. That's not right. That's cruel and unusual. Okay, so legal experts now expect that Millard and Smitch's sentences will be reduced to what it would be if they just killed one person. So it's still a life sentence, but they're eligible for parole in 25 years rather than, you know, 75 years for Millard and 50 years for Smitch. Exactly. Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch have been in custody since their arrest in May of 2013, so the pair have 15 years to go before they can make their first attempt at parole based on this Supreme Court ruling. Bringing us back to Tim Bosma, the person whose murder shed light on the murders of Laura Babcock and Wayne Millard, we wanted to just share with you what Charlene Bosma did after her husband's death. Based on the assistance she had received immediately after her husband's murder and during his trial, Charlene Bosma operated a charity for five years in her husband's memory to support and assist families of homicide victims. Called Tim's Tribute, it was dedicated to providing financial assistance for immediate needs, such as groceries, and trial needs, including expenses that arose from the family's attendance during the trial, whether it was lunches or parking, what have you. Charlene has said, Tim will always be loved and he will always be remembered. His daughter will grow up knowing how much he loved her. Thanks for listening. And if you want to see a really lame TikTok, find us. (laughs) Killer Destinations Pod, we're there waiting for you. 
we also wanted to share another five-star review that we received and thank you. We love it. We did receive another one that we didn't like, so we're not going to read no, that one. <laughs> yeah, this is this is too new to read the bad ones. <laughs> exactly. We will mock them at one point. We'll at do a dramatic point. drunken reading of our bad reviews. <laughs> that would be awesome, actually. We'll do like a live show of it. <laughs> oh, that'd be hilarious. <laughs> On January 24th, 2023, Seville 6589 titled her review, Can We Rate It 10 Stars? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> she said, my favorites and now several of my friends' favorites. Keep doing what you do, ladies. You stand apart from all the rest in the best way. Oh, that's awesome. Very sweet. Thank you so much for it. We appreciate it. Come to Chattanooga. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if you're not following us on our other social medias, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Destinations Podcast. And like Kathy said, you gotta see this TikTok video. <laughs> She's actually awesome in it. She just no, doesn't I'm not. think so. No, <laughs> no, she is. <laughs> I'm the reluctant TikToker. <laughs> Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.